Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Mullen Carl, Nasser, Ambrocafia, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block, uh, Roy Cohn, Wamperon, Wamperon. Don't cry for me. Hello again, and welcome to episode 36 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's Rock'em Sock'em action pack hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Juan Perón. Oh, now this is stirring deep-rooted childhood memories, Katie, of the soundtrack to Evita <laughs> playing in the Fort Cortina as the Fortnite family made their way across the country on holiday. So were you a musicals lad? Were you a, a young man <laughs> of the theatre? How is it that you came to be so intimate with Evita, Evita? <laughs> <laughs> I had no interest whatsoever in musical theatre, Katie, but I did have three sisters oh. and a mum who were all into musical theatre. That'll do so it. So I have had either Julie Covington or Elaine Page or Barbara Ditson, because this precedes the Madonna film, oh. all um, coming out of a slightly tinny set of speakers going, Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. Oh, you know it. All through my mad days. Hang on. Bad days? My uh. mad existence. <laughs> <laughs> You are damn good. So my only Evita story is that I went to the film premiere in London of the Madonna Evita. Yes. So I saw the film the first time it was ever shown in the UK. And then I went to the party afterward and I got there really early. And guess who else got there really early? Not Madge herself. Madonna. Yeah. So Madonna and I were just, it was one of those awkward things where we just kind of bumped into each other next to a few empty tables. And she's small, very tiny and tidy. And um, I just said, hi. And she went, hello. And uh, then I was uh, saved by a gaggle of gals, like about 10 feet away, who all just screamed, hi, Madonna. So they kind of rescued me. But that was my brush with fame, my brush with Evita, and my entire knowledge of Juan Perón. We're getting completely carried away from our topic. 
We are, Katie. I'm going to park my question about who Madonna was dating at this point and if it was still Warren Beatty or if she had moved on from Warren Beatty. And I'm going to introduce our guest for today, Natalia Milanesio. Now, Natalia was born and raised in Argentina. She is a history professor at the University of Houston and her specialities include 20th century Argentina, Peronism and modern day Latin America, which makes you, Natalia, the perfect guest for us today. Welcome. So I think we should start, Natalia. Could you just give us a very brief summary of who Juan Perón is, please? Well, Juan Perón, Juan Domingo Perón, that's how we call him in Argentina, is probably one of the most important historical figures in Argentine history and probably one of the most famous in modern Latin American history. He is um, a polarizing figure because of the profound transformations that Peronism introduced in Argentina in the 40s and 50s, but also because of the last longing effects in politics and society that basically are alive, are present even today. Katie, where should we start with this totemic figure then? Because he came to dominate Argentine politics. At one point, he represented a possibly mythical third way in the Cold War between left and right. Um, but there is so much in his life, Katie, it's it's quite a tough one for us. Yeah, it's a tricky one because um, he is somebody who ends up kind of dominating things in Argentina, at least as I understand it, Natalia, in a sort of cult of personality. But what I'm wondering about is how did he come to be formed as the politician that he came to be? Like, what was his background like? He was born in the late 19th century. He was born in 1895 in a small town of Lobos in the province of Buenos Aires. And very early on, he was separated from his family. Um, he was sent to the city of Buenos Aires for his studies while his family moved to the Patagonia. And when he was a teenager, he entered um, military school. He was a military man. Now, in 1943, he was part of a military secret uh, society and this society orchestrated a military coup against the government at that time. And Perón was part of this group of military officers. How is it that um, somebody who, I just, I guess I want to get a sense of this person who was separated from his family at a young age, sent off to military school. Um, he was also... Um, a somewhat of a sportsman as well, is that correct? He was kind of a jock? Yes, absolutely, Katie. He was, he loved sports. He practiced uh, boxing, fencing. He loved uh, car racing. Uh, he skied. Um, so he was a sportsman, and that was quite unusual for a politician. Oh, yeah. And so he must have had like a, a very powerful effect as well. Like, can you tell us what he looked like and, you know, how he dressed? Yes, absolutely. He, he for example, abandoned uh, the military uniform and started wearing plain clothing. Ah. Uh, and again, that was quite unusual for military men at that time in the 40s, right? He was a very charismatic figure. He used to smile a lot. Now we are very used to politicians smiling, but that was not the traditional image of politicians 
in Argentina in the 1940s or in the world. So the smile became some sort of a personal signature. The other thing that worked for his advantage was the fact that a lot of people found him very uh, similar um, or resembling a very famous uh, tango singer of that time. Ah. That's rather handy for Juan, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Carlos Gardel. And Carlos Gardel was, in the 30s, one of the most important, probably the most important tango singer uh, in South America and in the world, uh, recognized as an international figure. In addition to all these characteristics, Perón was, in the context of Argentine history, the first politician who uh, was quite happy to show his domestic life. So this again created some sort of mythology around his public persona as a common man. It sounds like he was a prototypical influencer, yeah. Tom. It sounds like he you know, was totally aware of how to brand himself. Yeah, I've seen a picture of him, uh, Natalia, and he's looking quite a dapper individual. He's in a white jacket, which looks quite racy, and he's got his hair swept back, sort of slipped back. He's quite matinee idol. Yes, exactly. Tango idol. <laughs> yeah. And I like that. I like Katie that, that image of the influencer. Absolutely. Uh, I think because of these characteristics, he became quite an original figure. All these elements were very appealing for the common people and in a way to change the seriousness of uh, of traditional uh, politicians. So he had been already married once by the time he met Ava, and uh, his first wife had died. Now, how did he meet little Eva, also known as Evita? Yes, they met actually in, uh, there was uh, an earthquake in San Juan, one of the uh, provinces of Argentina, and they met in an event that was organized to collect funds to like to relieve uh, the situation in San Juan. And at that time, she was particularly a radio actress who was transitioning into cinema. And after that encounter, they became quite inseparable to the point that she moved in with him without being married. Uh, quite a scandal, if you can imagine. She's 24 years younger than him. Yes, exactly. And they were not married. Katie, I think we need to get properly into Evita, but I've got a question just before that, Natalia, because he seems to be a man, Juan Perón, who always chooses his own path, who doesn't care what necessarily people have done before him. He's going to do what he thinks is right, whether other people like it or not. And the point where he's elected president for the first time in 1946... I mean, this is just as the Cold War is heating up and the world is being divided, as we know, Katie, from so many episodes in Billy Joel's magnum opus. The world is being split pretty much into capitalism and communism. Yes. So, Natalia, why does he not fall into either camp as most regimes and governments did at that time? How come he manages to sort of find his own way once again? Because one of the most important ideological paradigms that he introduced in these years was the idea of the third way. And the third way was basically uh, uh, Perón claiming a position between, like you said, Tom, between the, the Soviet bloc and the American bloc. He wanted to claim some sort of originality with this idea of the third way, but Perón was not an anti-capitalist. 
there were no anti-capitalist measures, and the kind of elements that he could have introduced that could have resembled some sort of Soviet elements were not really communist elements at all. So the third way was, again, I think more a claim of neutrality between communism and capitalism, but Peronism and Peron uh, were not anti-capitalist. It seemed to me that Peron aligned both with the far left and the far right. And I'm wondering, how did he swing that? Was he just kind of appealing to anyone who was extreme? I I don't think that he was uh, claiming or uh, trying to attract the, the... the far right or the far left. I think that we can center, we can actually put him more in the center in a way. But throughout his career, and I think that this is a characteristic of Perón in the 40s, in the 50s, and later in the 70s, he was more of a pragmatic in a way, always uh, trying to combine different ideological or political elements to his advantage. Uh, so he he had a, a profound sense of adaptability in a way to the historical context, uh, and this is the reason why maybe there is this perception of his changes, ideological changes. But the changes were not that profound. Uh, they really show some sort of adaptability. Which is so important, especially in Argentina, which was just coup central. I (laughs) guess everybody was sort of looking over their shoulders at all time, making sure that nobody was sneaking up on them. So let's talk about Eva Perón's influence and effect, because she was, in effect, his partner governing the country in terms of what social policies went into effect. Yes, exactly. What is interesting uh, about their political working relation is that it seems that there was some sort of a division of labor uh, between them. He, throughout his career, he established close relations with the unions and the unionized workers. But beyond that, there was a population of the working poor and poor people more broadly who were not represented in the unions and still needed to be addressed by the government. So for all these sectors that were not really represented within the unions, Eva Perón came to represent a very important figure uh, because she in a way embody a sort of welfare state for the sectors and the and the tool for that was uh, her foundation the foundation Eva Perón that became very very important and channel a lot of uh, government funds toward the sectors so uh, money for the elderly and healthcare for the elderly the construction of housing for poor mothers or single mothers, the creation of schools in a poor neighborhood for children of disadvantaged sectors. So this is the reason why she became such an important icon for Peronism, in some ways surpassing Perón as an icon of Peronism within Argentina and like you guys were saying earlier now in the world, because I, th- I think that right now uh, more people are aware 
uh, of Eva Perón than Juan Domingo Perón, no? Yeah. Um, I Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't write a, a musical called Juan. Did no, he? he didn't. Uh, yeah, Juan was definitely down the roster when you look at the the cast list of Evita. I mean, it's so incredible her influence. Also, she was behind women getting the vote in Argentina. What was the special sauce that Eva had? What what was her magic? What was it that captivated Argentinians? Yeah, that that special sauce is connected to quite explosive recipe, I would say. Uh, <laughs> she was young, she was beautiful, she was glamorous, she was very well articulated and very passionate. And she was a woman in a masculine, masculine scenario. Uh, again, this is the 40s and 50s. You don't have that time of female presence in politics. And it's interesting how she also changed her public persona, because at the beginning, probably in connection to her past as an actress, she was very glamorous. And when she started doing all this charitable work with the foundation, she slowly started changing that public persona. Um, she became more austere in her presentation. And for example, she started wearing pants. Uh, and again, now we are, you know, suits for women are an icon of women in, in power or women in politics. But at that time, women wearing pants were an scandal, basically, especially women in politics. Oh, Katie, this is quite the episode. Shall we have a cheeky little breather come back after the adverts? Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. I'm a hunter. That's what I do. He's called KC. Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. He's an American vigilante. And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand. He rescues kidnapped children. There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents. By any means necessary. Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? He scares me. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. And he might scare you. About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you? Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. I can't think of any equivalents elsewhere, not just in Argentina would this be groundbreaking, I guess, Natalia, but I can't think of any equivalents at that time elsewhere in the world. It wasn't like, Katie, we were hearing a great deal about um, Mrs. Truman or about Clement Attlee's wife or Joseph Stalin's wife. These were comparatively invisible women. Yeah, good point. Um, it does seem very, very modern that they presented themselves as a partnership. And yet, Natalia, this partnership did not continue for very long because uh, they were only married, what, six years or something? She died from cervical cancer, which was actually the same thing that killed Juan Perón's first wife. Um, and it was kept from her that she had cervical cancer, um, which just seems so 
strange and wrong to me. Um, the fact that he hid from his wife that she had the disease. How how do you think he managed to do this? Yes, that's an interesting that's an interesting topic. The disease debilitated her quite rapidly. There was a moment in which she was bedridden and she has several people attended to her needs. Um, so there was some sort of circle around her that prevented her from getting the truth about her situation. The other thing is that uh, throughout this period, she, while she could, she continued campaigning for, for Perón and for the government. Uh, and actually, there are photos of the time in which the, the disease is quite clear, it's quite evident in her body, in her face, right? Uh, and she continued right until the end to the point that she voted from bed. Uh, the, the government used these type of images right until the end, which goes back to the power of her figure, as an icon for for the government, no? For sure. And it seems that Juan Perón perhaps was uh, orchestrating this, like he, it was to his benefit and interest that she just keep on being the loyal little trooper, and that was all part of the propaganda. Yes, with regard to this, you know, because of the characteristics of, of Peronism as such a, such a polarizing political movement in Argentina, there are a lot of uh, speculations and a lot of theories, no, uh, type of conspiracy theories about uh, manipulation coming from both sides, in a way. In some cases, these things are quite difficult to prove, and only the actors involved, in a way, knew exactly what happened. So there is there are these theories about the manipulation of Perón, no, to the point of quote unquote using her right at, up until the end. But there are also a lot of speculations and a lot of theories about being the other way around, uh, portraying Evita as an authoritarian, a vengeful woman who actually controlled Perón throughout her life or their life together to the point that Perón in this version of the story is presented as quite emasculated. But her death did lead to an extraordinary reaction, didn't it, Natalia? Yes. Three million people attending her funeral or watching her body being brought through the streets of Buenos Aires. It sounds like it sounds like a devastating event for the nation as a whole. Yes, absolutely. People from all over the country came to Buenos Aires this, in a way, added later on to her mythology, no? and, and it really showed for the very first time in Argentine history the level of devotion and the level of passion that her figure provoked no? in, in common people. Later on in, in Argentine history, what happened to her body even added more not to the mythology. We've both looked into this and death is absolutely not the end I think for it's, Evita. It's the beginning of a new chapter for <laughs> Evita, Tom. Yeah, a different what, what happened? What happened? Well, are we right here, Natalia, in thinking that there was an unusual sort of embalming done 
Juan wanted to kind of keep her fresh and lively. Daisy fresh. Yeah, yeah. Daisy fresh. Um, and then she, her final resting place turned out not to be her final resting place at all. Yeah, there, there was this need coming from the government to preserve her for the funeral, no, the public funeral. But after that, and after Perón uh, is overthrown in 55, and again, as a testament of Evita's an icon of Peronism, the body was stolen uh, from Argentina and from her grave, and the, the anti-Peronist government in power hid the, the body in, uh, in Italy, in Milan, in a grave with a different name. I have a sense of Evita's power in the fact that the story goes that one had a mortician fix her up once they disinterred her from the grave in Milan, and he kept her for a few days in his Madrid home on the dining room table. Have you heard about this story? No, I'm sorry, Katie. <laughs> are, are you are you crying fake news at me? Is this because listen to this? Apparently, had his wife his wife. Isabel, his third wife, brush and style Dead Evita's hair every day to keep her looking daisy fresh. It's quite a tough sell to your third wife, isn't it? Do you mind just brushing the hair of my dead wife? <laughs> She's on the dining room table. I don't know. I think it's like a. It's one of those. Um, you know, if you if you have the right stuff, you'll do it. If you have what it takes, you'll do this thing. But I don't know. Is this? Have you heard the? Is this something that you've come across in in your studies and research? No, no, no. To be honest, no. Don't pop my bubble. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things about Juan Perón Casey that you read where if you don't like him, then you find reasons to admire him. There are other things, and this is why I find him almost a uniquely confusing individual, where he does things which seem totally reprehensible. And possibly, Natalia, the most reprehensible among these things that he does is that he explicitly protects Nazis who have fled post-war Germany. Um, and without Katie wanting to enter a game of sort of Nazi top trumps, Uh-oh. Um, because there is no such thing as a good Nazi, when three of those people are Adolf Eichmann, who sent half a million Hungarian Jews to their death at 1C, uh, Klaus Barbie, nicknamed the Butcher of Leon, or Joseph Mengele, Dr. Joseph Mengele, who had the similarly punchy nickname, the Angel of Death. Natalia, these are deeply loathsome, reprehensible, evil men. Why on earth was Juan Perón protecting them? He was not protecting them personally. Um, um, th that's one thing that I'd like to clarify. There was a pragmatism um, in connection to the arrival of Nazis uh, to Argentina in this time period. And it was connected to the potential for uh, using the knowledge of uh, some of these individuals, fundamentally scientists uh, and engineers um, who came to Argentina in this time period in a moment in which the government was planning technological modernization and advancing industrialization in the country. And that's not unique to Argentina, is it? Because America had Operation Paperclip where former Nazis, Werner von Braun, who was the brains behind the whole Apollo rocket program, had been in the SS. But is there a difference between, and again, I am playing Nazi top trumps now, Katie, yeah, yeah. but the difference between a Werner 
von Braun and a Klaus Barbie or Joseph Mengele? What's happening in Argentina was happening all over the world. I guess that in the case of Argentina, because of the high profile of some of these uh, cases that you mentioned, fundamentally uh, Mengele and Eichmann, and the fact that Eichmann was captured in Argentina added no, to, to, the, to the publicity, the, the very bad publicity of Argentina as a, as a Nazi heaven. Uh, but this was a phenomenon that was happening in other countries at the time. And there's a long tradition of German emigration to Argentina, which predates the Second World War, isn't there? There are a lot of, of German-speaking communities in Argentina. There are parts of Argentina where the Spanish word for certain things is replaced by the German word. There is a, a rich German tradition in Argentina. Yes, and that's exactly... Uh, Perón and, and his government had a very... Uh, important relation with the German Argentine community. Uh, so this is also an element to be considered and that in a way explains you know, the arrival of Nazis after uh, the war. At the very same time, he was also cultivating, and this is less known, but he was also cultivating uh, relations with the Jewish community in Argentina. Yes, because uh, anti-Semitism was rampant around the world, uh, continued after World War II, uh, quite disgustingly. And yeah, it does seem a little strange that Peron was uh, less anti-Semitic in his approach than other countries at that time. So definitely a whole really weird bundle of contradictions there. So Perón had probably seen better days by the time he was sworn in for his third term as president in the 70s. Um, some suggest that he was perhaps senile. What was the story there? The thing is that he had changed profoundly his politics. So there was an expectation that that Perón from the 70s, uh, when he was coming back to Argentina, he was going to be, he was going to be the same politician and the same statement that he had been in the 40s and the 50s. And he was not because he was way older. Uh, and the historical context has changed. And he had turned more to the right than to the left. And by the time that he came, he had a completely different agenda. So I think that the changes are more connected to the political scenario and the political changes in his own ideology and position that with his senility, in a way. Did his popularity with the majority of working class people in Argentina ever seriously drop away after the love affair with Evita? Because there's a few incidences Katie, that have stuck out for me. I've mentioned the Nazi top trumps. The other one is this relationship, Natalia, that he is supposed to have had with an underage girl, with Nelida Rivas. And there are stories that she was 13 years old when he began the relationship. Yes, that's... Uh, Nelida Rivas was a, was a very young girl, a teenager, who belonged to an organisation that was created in the 50s that was kind of a union for uh, high school students. After Evita's death, he began this relation with, with Nelly, Nelly da Rivas, uh, and this was a point of contention uh, throughout this period that was quite used by the anti-Peronists and the church uh, against uh, Peron and Peronism. He never denied the affair, but he never openly accepted the affair, and it did not really affect 
the relation between Perón and Peronist and his followers at all, I don't think. So when he died, well, why did he die? Did he, it was just poor health that knocked him out? Yes, he had a heart attack. And he was already in, in his late uh, 70s. Uh, so mm. he was quite old. Uh, in general, he, throughout his life, he was very healthy, but he died of a heart attack. Now, Natalia, how's this for a grisly postscript? No rest for the dead. In 1987, Perón's tomb was broken into and his hands cut off, Tom, with a chainsaw. What about this? Yuck! Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Like we were discussing with regard to Evita, I think these events are testament of the passion of anti-Peronist against power of this polarizing figure, no? And the and the profound hatred of anti-Pyrrhonists to the point of attacking, no, the 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 bodies and making a point about politics by going uh, into these things, no? Sure, sure. And also uh poor Avita's hair is not going to be tenderly brushed in the afterlife, certainly not by the handless corpse of Juan Perón. That would make it even harder for him. It's very hard with those stumps. And his wife, Isabel, took over as president. Now, was she also a performer of some sort or a singer? Yes, she was a dancer and a singer. Yes. Um, And they met, uh, well, one of the versions is that they met uh, when he was in Panama, uh, right after he left Argentina after the coup. And they met in Panama, and they moved together uh, to Spain, and basically that was the beginning of the relation. Now, uh, Isabel uh, Martínez de Perón, Isabelita, as more commonly known among Argentines, uh, she had absolutely no political experience whatsoever. Uh, She was a performer, and she was quite uh, basically in the shadows, throughout this period in exile. Uh, and then when the, the ticket was Perón Perón in the elections that put them in power, and then suddenly he dies and, and she takes power in, in a quite uh, explosive context of this, like I was saying earlier, this division between a right wing and a left wing uh, within Peronism, the rise of revolutionary movements in Argentina beyond Peronism, economic crisis, and of course, her her lack of uh, knowledge of the country and her absolutely lack of experience in the political realm. Yes, and so of course the U.S. took uh, no hesitation in backing a coup and uh, getting a different dictator in. Who was that? Yes, the history of Argentina is characterized, no, by these authoritarian regimes from the 1930s on. But 76 mm. is uh, the military coup uh, against uh, uh, Isabel Perón's government that put in power one of the bloodiest, most brutal dictatorships in Latin America in a context of a lot of bloodiest, brutal dictatorships in Latin America, like the case of Pinochet in Chile. No, But that the last dictatorship in Argentina from 76 to 83 uh, uh, remains now one of one of the worst in the region. All in all, throughout the period, 30,000 uh, people were disappeared by the military regime, yes. I guess to tell you, it's almost unimaginable 
to try and conceive of what Argentina even today would be like without the influence of Juan Perón. So it's almost 50 years since he died, but it must feel like his shadow still stretches across the country. Yes, absolutely. And that is, I think, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of Peronism as a historical phenomenon. After Perón's death to now, there were different reincarnations, we could say, of Peronism. Uh, you have figures like President Carlos Menem, who in the 1990s uh, introduced a package of neoliberal reforms, uh, including, for example, the privatization of uh, public services and public companies. Uh, but you also have uh, people like Nestor Kirchner or Cristina Kirchner, who are considered more leftist Peronists and who introduce more uh, progressive measures, like, for example, rights for LGBTQI uh, people. Oh, gosh, yes. It sounds like it's one of those choose-your-own-adventure scenarios. Uh, which facet of the man are you going to be following? Natalia, thank you so much for this. You have given us so much food for thought, and I've given you a little bit of fake news <laughs> to to wrap into your, your future uh, talks on this subject. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Natalia was not inclined to indulge me in my fanciful excursions to the afterlife of Evita. I, I thought that there was a little bit of uh, actual factuality to the journey of Evita's corpse, hither and yon. Your research, Katie, as I have learned on this podcast, is peerless. And I think there were some interesting avenues, avenidas, to explore there. <laughs> but the thing with Juan Perón is there is so much going on. <laughs> it's a lot. I love, and also in, in the whole course of this conversation, um, the, this could have been a drinking game around the word coup. Because yeah. when you come to Argentina, like, it's a coup fest. It's, you would be blotto at the end of it. Yeah, he seems to have a thing for the performing arts, or certainly the ladies who adorn the performing arts. He likes the ladies, he likes the young ladies, and he is also, I think, a very modern figure in that he understands uh, image, and he understands the appeal of captivating the common man. So that is such a contemporary approach. And also, Katie, there are things that I don't like on uh, reflection about Juan Perón, <laughs> some of the Nazis amongst them. Um, but one thing I have been impressed by is the sense that at no point did he seem to feel upstaged by wife number two, Evita, which for a man of that era was quite something, I would guess. I think that's kind of a cool thing because obviously he's a little bit of an authoritarian and uh, it's his way or the highway, but he was happy to share the limelight with Evita and indeed to further the cause of women's rights, uh, uh, women's health, and indeed uh, women's suffrage. So hats off to him. Not so great that he said it was okay for Dr. Joseph Mengele to come into the country. Katie, I've got another question about your premiere yes. of the 1996, was it a smash hit? We'll say it was a smash hit, uh, Madonna version, film version of the stage musical Evita. That I attended. That you attended. In Leicester Square. Oh, sorry, Leicester. What's wrong with my teeth? <laughs> what's wrong with my tongue? I have no saliva left. <laughs> I need to be embalmed somewhat like Evita and then have my hair styled. But those things would be very nice. So, yes, uh, in 1996, there was me and Madonna. Yeah. Was it Warren Beatty and Madonna was going out with at that point? Or has that been lost to the mists? 
you know, I don't, I don't know whose face she was sitting on at the time, but um, there was something going on with somebody, with a man somewhere. Well, perhaps more um, importantly, Katie, can we remember who <laughs> plays Juan Perón in that film? Well, tellingly, no, because who cares about Juan Perón when Evita's around? I mean, that's always that was the case in. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're in Argentina and if you're Natalia, you care about Juan Perón, but. Um, all eyes were on Evita and all eyes were on Madonna, who was playing Juan Perón in yeah. that film. It was the Welsh character actor, Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price. Yeah. Who can ever forget Jonathan Price? <laughs> <laughs> who do you think would be more pleased? Evita at being played by Madonna in 1996 when Madonna's always massive, but she's pretty massive still at that point. Yeah. Or Juan Perón when from beyond the grave he finds he's being played by Jonathan Price. I think that Evita comes out top in that little competition, in that little casting call. Um, not saying that Jonathan Price did a bad job. Uh, it's just that perhaps he didn't have that tango dancer twinkle that Juan may have required. And also she gets the best songs. She gets all the best songs. But she is the performer. She's, you know, much like Ava was. Well, this is all making sense, Katie. If you have enjoyed this podcast and you would like another recommendation from Katie and me, we would recommend American Vigilante. Now, this is a new podcast about a guy called KC. He lives off grid. And get this, Katie. He saves kidnapped children. He's a pretty complex individual. He could save your life, but he could end it too. American Vigilante is true crime, but it's a lot more than that. It's rescue missions, it's assassination attempts, it's last gasp protection from the Mexican mafia. Oh my goodness, it's all the stuff that you hope never comes to you. It's presented by former BBC journalist Sam Walker. She's been speaking to Casey for months, and now she's laid it all on us. She recorded everything he's told her. It's shocking, inspiring, frightening, and thought-provoking. Search for American Vigilante in your podcast podcast app now. And if you would like a little bit more of me and Katie and who could blame you, you can get in touch with us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Spread That Fire. You can also email us, fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. You might want to talk about the episode you've just heard. You might want to talk about an episode still to come. You might want to volunteer, Katie, to come on the show as a Brainbox guest. Um, I can't really focus on everything you've just said because I just can't get out of my head. What do you think... Ava Perone would look like now if we dug her up because she's probably still pretty well embalmed. Her hair will look great. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become 
Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.